according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Matthew 16 is our starting passage this morning. Matthew 16. Take a moment to make sure my phone's on vibrate. Sure enough. I love Matthew 16. It's a great passage. It's the one, of course, the Catholics like using because Peter, uh, they think he's the rock upon which uh, the church is going to get built. And there's a tremendous amount of doctrine in this chapter in uh, the messages the Lord delivered in a variety of different ways. But we'll start with the episode here at the first part of the chapter in verses 1 through 4, which in your Harmony of the Gospels is titled, Pharisees Increase Attack. Uh, I wouldn't title it that if I was writing the Harmony of the Gospels, but it's not my Harmony, so I'm stuck. I guess if I invented my own Harmony, I could title it whatever I wanted to. I'm using somebody else's Harmony. Uh, Pharisees increase attack. I I would rewrite that to say Pharisees repeat attack. Uh, They repeated the same um, stupid question that they had the, the previous time. They keep repeating it over and over and over again, and they're not listening to any answers that they're getting. And uh, they really are um, demonstrating who they are and what they're doing. And we're going to see that played out here this morning. And I hope that we're also going to see the tactics that are used and recognize that the tactics they use are tactics the world uses all the time anyway. And uh, if you've ever tried to debate an evolutionist, if you've ever tried to debate a, uh, an atheist, if you've ever tried to debate... Um, a, uh, a a political liberal, if you've ever tried to debate, uh, you know, I, I want to say there's about six or eight different fields that I've debated where people have employed disingenuous logic. In other words, they're not willing to consider your evidence, but they insist that you accept theirs without question. And uh, if if those are the rules for the debate, you can win every debate. If, if my evidence is the only evidence that counts and your evidence is dismissed out of hand, then, then I win every debate, don't I? And uh, it's, it's a flawed, to say the least, and even criminal um, method for debating your point or for proving your point. And it actually is a crucial element in misinformation. If you ever study the science of misinformation, how uh, political regimes will will mislead their nation and their population and so forth, uh, there's a there's a textbook study out there on 25 steps for promoting uh, wide scale misinformation on a national level. There are 25 steps for doing that, most of which are included in this faulty debate technique that. Uh, I've encountered again and again and again, and sadly, I've encountered it amongst believers who don't realize that they're using a flawed method in uh, trying to defend their position. I, I mean, I'll debate anybody, but let's at least have accurate methods in the in the matters we discuss. So that will come up here as well. Let me get our slideshow running. Pharisees increase attack. And you'll see what I'm talking about as we read these verses. Before we begin... Oh, thank you. Appreciate that. Last time that happened, everybody just sat there for 45 minutes and let uh, 
Let that go without saying anything. All right, we'll work on that then. It will work. It has to work. <laughs> or we'll just do a lot of prayer. How's that sound? Thank you, Lord. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. We look forward to the message you have for us here this morning. Uh, Father, we thank you for the technical details, Father. None of them really matter, but they are blessings, and they help us to learn. They help us to communicate. We appreciate them, and uh, we don't want to take them for granted. They are a part of your grace provision. Thank you, Father, that we can sit indoors with the air conditioning and, and uh, comfortable seats, uh, projector to display the notes, and we're so spoiled, Father. We thank you for blessing us in this abundant way. Guide us in the truth. Open the eyes of our understanding, and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Pharisees increase attack. The scripture comes from both Matthew and Mark. Matthew 16, 1 through 4 is the longer text, the more fuller, complete text that we will examine. Uh, Mark is the shorter text. As we have time, we uh, may even uh, examine some of the text criticism questions that come up in this text because some of the, the material here, the uh, red sky at night uh, verses, two and three are actually questionable in terms of manuscript evidence. And so we will examine that as well. All right. Reading in Matthew 16, verse one, the Pharisees and Sadducees came up and testing Jesus. They asked him to show them a sign from heaven. But he replied to them, when it is evening, you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning there will be a storm today for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the signs of the times? An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and uh, a sign will not be given it except the sign of Jonah, and he left them and went away. All right, so there's the context in Matthew. Over in Mark, Mark 8, verses 10 through 13, you'll see this is significantly shorter. Uh, well, you got the geographic reference in verse 10. He entered the boat with his disciples, came to the district of Dalmanutha. That's following the feeding of the 4,000. The Pharisees came out and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, Why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And that's it. Leaving them, he again embarked and went away to the other side. So the Matthew account is fuller than the Mark account, and yet uh, we do have the details in Mark, for instance, the sighing deeply, uh, which is noteworthy in terms of its vocabulary and, and providing uh, information in terms of his thinking in this, and then uh, the craving for the sign and uh, the Lord's statement that he will not give them that sign. The only sign they're going to get is going to be the sign of Noah, I mean the sign of Jonah, uh, the death, burial, resurrection, and uh, by then, uh, for them, you might even think of it as being uh, maybe a bit too late. All right, we're going to get uh, six points of study out of this. First of all, Matthew records this incident as a cooperative work of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Mark only records the Pharisees' involvement. 
Matthew records this as a cooperative work of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Matthew 16.1, we had reference to both Pharisees and Sadducees. Mark only records the Pharisees' involvement. Again, we uh, have seen uh, situations like this on a number of times. We view this not as a contradiction. We view this as complementary information. Mark is not is not untruthful in what he says when he says the Pharisees came questioning him or the Pharisees came asking for a sign. Uh, it is a true statement that the Pharisees were here asking for a sign. Uh, in addition to that, there were Sadducees involved in, uh, in this process. Uh, Mark omitted that, but that does not mean that Mark's account was false in any way. Uh, Mark's account was very true, just he chose to emphasize the Pharisees, whereas Matthew included both groups. It is interesting, though, when you view them in cooperation, because... Under normal circumstances, these groups did not cooperate on pretty much anything. These groups were in a lot of hostility towards one another. It's like Republicans and Democrats. What do they what do they cooperate on? See, and if if there's an issue, um, actually something happened this week where there was a a partnership with uh, Senator John Cornyn of Texas and Senator Dianne Feinstein of of California. And how often have those two senators ever cooperated on anything? You think that that doesn't happen very often? And so it becomes noteworthy when it does happen. And that's the situation here. Uh, There are tremendous studies available on grace notes. I've not taken the time to incorporate them or include them in the Life of Christ series. Uh, I have referenced them on a number of occasions that you can go to the grace notes website, download those documents and and uh, read them at your leisure. But I, I would urge you to do that if you've not done that, because the background on those groups, not just the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, the Essenes, the other groups that were there in that time are very worthwhile in uh, in studying. Also, the geographic references may appear to be contradictory, but they are not. In Matthew 15:39, the last verse of chapter 15, it says, Sending away the crowds, Jesus got into the boat and came to the region of Megadon. And uh, Mark references the uh, district of Dalmanutha, and that's not contradictory. Uh, different terminology that's employed for regions that were largely uh, overlapping or largely co-located, as it were. Uh, no different than saying the, uh, the region of Magdala, uh, where Mary Magdalene was from. Or the, there were other terms for it, and we've encountered them already in the past. I think the, um, when he walked on water and he crossed to the other side, he came to the land of Gennesaret. It's another term that references this district, references the, uh, the territory there on the northwest shore, Capernaum being the, the very uh, northern boundary, uh, Magdala, the southern boundary. In some cases, they will extend the region all the way down to Tiberias as far as what they consider the uh, Gennesaret uh, territory there. No different than what we have today if we talk about going into, are we in, are we in Austin right now or are we in Travis County? See, are we in the Crestview neighborhood? Well, all, all of them are true. And, and, and to say one versus the other, to say we've, we've come to church here in Crestview this morning or we've, we're holding church in Travis County is just depending on the terminology we want to use, very accurate. Maybe we should go back to uh, the time of the Spanish colony and, 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 <laughs> and say, well, you know, we used to be under the Spanish flag. And what was this territory called there? You know, it was called uh, whatever it was called. All right. I'm sorry, I didn't grow up with Texas state history. I grew up with Washington state history. 
You know, and it, but this is the kind of thing, though, and you will encounter it. You will encounter the Bible skeptics and the God-haters and the people that want to point out contradictions everywhere they see them and say, see, your Bible's not trustworthy. And you stop and say, now, wait a minute, slow down. This is what we're talking about. It's not contradictory. We don't, we don't view these passages in, uh, in hostility towards one another. They're complementary, and, uh, and they can be very easily reconciled if you are of the mind to do that you can harmonize every single passage in the synoptic gospels and and john is then a piece of cake to uh, to blend all four gospels together into one continuous narrative all right <clears throat> what were the pharisees demanding the pharisees were repeatedly demanding christ to show his evidence you realize that when they're asking him to show them a sign from heaven what they are asking for is evidence. They want his credentials. They want the testimony from God that he himself is a messenger that they are uh, required to submit to. And so the Pharisees were repeatedly demanding Christ to show his evidence, no matter how many times he plainly did so. And this then becomes the key. When you recognize that your audience does not want proof. All they want is to keep demanding more and more proof. But their end objective is they're not going to accept anything you give them. And you could, you could lay out a mountain of proof. And they would say, well, you haven't shown me anything yet. Show me, show me one item of proof. And it gets highly frustrating if you allow yourself to be trapped into that black hole of disingenuous debating. And I've allowed myself to be sucked into that on way too many occasions, and I don't know that I will ever allow that to happen again. You know, if, if it looks like that black hole is starting to suck me down that path, I've determined at this point that there's really no indication that that will ever be edifying. And uh, to stop and say, you know what, here's where we are, and you're not really seeking answers. You just keep saying, give me, give me more proof, give me more proof, and, and you're dismissing everything I've given you up to this point. No matter how many times he plainly did so. We realize in Matthew 16:1 there are countless other occasions where he has uh, demonstrated his credentials. Let me just give you a handful of them, two that you have on the screen. Beyond Matthew 16:1, prior to that, we had John 2:18 as well as Matthew 12:38 but I'm also going to take you into another text in in John John 3 but for the moment let's back up to Matthew and then we'll hit John so just a few chapters back in Matthew chapter 12 it wasn't that long ago Matthew chapter 12 it was episode 25 in the Galilean ministry but we read about it here in Matthew 12 it is a passage of conflict uh, the Pharisees uh, accuse him of casting out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. He points out the nature of the angelic conflict and as a divided house and a divided kingdom. And then he points out, by the way, uh, how do your sons cast out demons? And uh, very convicting towards the Pharisees and the demonism they were dabbling with. All right. Then the nature of trees and fruit, verses 33 through 37. And finally, in verse 38, some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. It's the very same message he delivers again 
in chapter 16. How many times does he have to keep delivering that message? Well, as many times as it takes. And if they're not going to accept his evidence, if they're not going to accept his testimony, then why give them anything different? Just give them the same thing you gave them last time. And say you either accept it or you reject it. And so he says, um, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. And the language there being no sign. In other words, we're not, he's not there to dance to their music. He's not there to make them happy. He's not there to, to uh, try to entertain them or convince them of anything. And think about that in your own evangelism. Are you trying to talk somebody into eternal life? Are you trying to make a sale, a sales pitch? You're just laying out the testimony, and they have to take it or leave it, deal with it as revealed. But the sign of Jonah the prophet, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the, of the whale or the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And goes on to describe that. Now, his message in chapter 16, was it just as thorough? We don't really think so. He maybe abbreviated it, but he did pretty well convict them as being an evil and adulterous generation. That's the same identical phraseology back to chapter 16 again. So uh, he says, an, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. A sign will not be given it except the sign of Jonah. And he left them and went away. So whether or not he expanded on it, whether or not he said, you know, three days, three nights, blah, blah, blah. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. Uh, but Matthew clearly at this point uh, is most likely abbreviating uh, the content of these messages. All right, now back to John chapter 2. Back to John 2. All right. Rather, you're not losing track of time, are you? Oh, okay. All right. John chapter 2. Now, he's already done a miracle. He turned water to wine. And uh, this was the first of his signs, we're told in verse 11. First of his signs. Remember, the term sign, semeon, is not, is not emphasizing the power involved. That's dunamis. That's a work of power or wonder. But the sign is a, is a testimony of his credentials. And the first of his signs was the turning water to wine in verse 11. And then having done that sign, uh, the disciples, uh, in response to that sign, exercised faith. We're told that his disciples believed in him. We're told in verse 11. Now he goes to the temple and he drives them out and the leaders there in the temple say, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? All right, so keep in mind, and, and Jesus knew it, the disciples knew it, the Pharisees knew it, the religious leaders knew it, that the purpose for a sign was the establishment of authority. It's like the badge a police officer wears or the identification, uh, the credentials for, uh, for anybody. Law enforcement, someone with a warrant, someone that wants to come into your home. You say, you're not coming into my home, where's your warrant? See, or where's your, where's your badge? Where, what are your credentials? All right? And so when they say, what sign do you do, what semeon do you perform to show us as your authority? They understood the issue. And all of these, uh, all of these subsequent um, demands are nothing more than a rejection of the authority that they don't want to accept in the first place. The biggest key is, is that they are afraid of losing their power. 
They're afraid of losing their authority. They're in a bitter fight for their own authority against the Sadducees in order to have control, the Sanhedrin, in order to have control over the Jewish people under the Roman dominion. And, and so it's a power game on their part, and, uh, and they don't want to lose, lose hold on that. All right. Again, uh, he gives them that message on Jonah. He says, destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. He's speaking to them in a metaphor. He's speaking to them in a parable with great spiritual truth behind it. They don't have a clue what he's talking about. And even the disciples themselves, John wouldn't be able to figure that out until after the resurrection is when he put it together to realize that that's what that message was dealing with. Now, over in chapter 3, Nicodemus comes by night. And his confession is one of the most significant statements in, in all the gospel record. A man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we, we know. And he doesn't have a mouse in his pocket. He's talking about, when he says we, he's talking as a Pharisee, as a voting member of the Sanhedrin. He's talking in large uh, about the, uh, the group there. The Pharisees, we know that you have come as a teacher, for no one can do these signs. Again, it's semeon. Here it's plural, though, semea. These signs that you do unless God is with them. So we have an admission between chapter 2 and chapter 3. The admission is, is that they have recognized the signs are legitimate and that if they are intellectually honest... If they, if they are truly seeking answers and seeking truth, they can come to no other conclusion. That he is indeed a spirit-anointed prophet uh, like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and so much more. Um, but at the very least, they have to recognize that his credentials are undeniable. That he is a messenger, a prophetic messenger from God. So every other time it comes up again. Every other time that Pharisees come forward and say, show us your credentials, is an illegitimate, disingenuous um, debating technique or dodge against the truth. Because the fact has already been established. And in any, in any debate, in any exploration of truth, in any, in any teaching of doctrine like we have going on this morning, for example, if... if um, if we had to go back over the basics all over again, you know, we taught bibliology. We taught that, that this is God's word, right? And, and we know it's God's word. Everyone here this morning accepts that it's God's word. And so we don't have to waste our time or spend our time, not a waste, but spend our time uh, and in every single Bible class taking an hour to prove that this is God's word. And then now that we've proven that, we have five minutes remaining to teach whatever doctrine I'm going to teach out of whatever chapter. No. We don't have to go back over that old ground we've already covered. We can go right to Matthew 16 and begin humbling ourselves to the teaching of Matthew 16 because we've already established the credentials of God's Word. Does that make sense? The idea that, that you know, a skeptic would come in here and say, oh, well, that's just an oral tradition that the Catholic Church put together in this book called John and packed it together in a Bible and blah, blah, blah. They've got this flawed view of bibliology to begin with. See, well, we don't have to go there time and time and time and time and time again. We are already convinced that this is God's word, that it's sovereign, that it's authority over our lives. And we can just turn to Matthew 16 and, and start our study, right? Open in prayer and go with it. So 
when they come to him time and time and time again and say, show us your credentials, that's as ludicrous and as blasphemous and as evil as somebody sitting here in a Bible class and saying, nope, nope, stop what you're doing. Go right back and do that bibliology thing all over again. I don't think that's the Bible. I don't think that's God's word. I think that's human traditions. And we stop and say, well, hmm, we taught this last week. We taught this the year before. We taught this the year before that. See? So rather than waste my time going back over bibliology and proving that the Bible is the Bible, why don't you take your own time, review the doctrine, get studied up, get on the same page with the rest of us, and then come into Bible class. In the meantime, I'm not going to waste my time with you anymore. That's pearls before swine. See? So all of these attempts, and, and as I mentioned, this is a common technique in a lot of different realms where people that, that don't want to really address the evidence can ignore it and say, well, you haven't provided any evidence because they can just out of hand act as if you haven't said a thing, <laughs> act like you've not said a word about anything and say, well, you haven't given me any evidence. And they want to go back over ground that's already been covered or should have been covered at that point. All right. Despite the undeniable evidence, the religious leaders still resisted his message. Despite the undeniable evidence that Jesus presented to them, the religious leaders still resisted his message. They even acknowledged it in John 3. John 3, 2. And this is really what it comes down to. The atheist or anyone else that rejects the revelation of God. You know, natural revelation through creation leaves them without excuse. It's undeniable that creation itself testifies to his eternal nature and his, in his uh, invisible power. That anyone... That's a part of creation that observes creation uh, ought to at least recognize the existence of the creator. So despite the undeniable evidence, the religious leader still resisted his message. John 3, 2, which we've already read. We know, Rabbi, teacher, we know that you have come from God as a teacher for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. The adversary is able to empower his messengers. And there are such a thing as false signs and false wonders, and the adversary is very good at that. Um, however, no matter what he replicates, no matter what he imitates, there's always flaws involved, there's always shortcomings, there's always limitations, there's always uh, the, the clear indicators that, that uh, for instance, the, the phony messages, the false messages of false teaching that go along with the false prophets. The undeniable ministries, the undeniable miracles and powers that Christ exhibited uh, left them with no other conclusion. And that's what makes their rejection so blasphemous. When we turn over to John 11, you just get floored when you read a verse like this. John 11:47, and uh, And it's remarkable. I mean, how do you deny the resurrection of Lazarus? Right. He's been in the grave multiple days. You would think that, you know, decay is setting in and and uh, the stench after the four days is it's pretty rough. And uh, we had to deal with a, a corpse for 11 days in, uh, no, for 14 days in uh, Kuwait, 
that we weren't, it was evidence of a crime and we weren't allowed to reposition the body or anything. We just had to leave it there and put a tarp over it. And, uh, uh, got nasty in the desert heat. Well, um, so he says, remove the stone. And they're like, are you kidding? We don't want to remove that stone that, you know, the smell's going to come out of there. And, uh, anyway, Lazarus come forth. He comes forth. And in response to the sign, to the credentials, the recognition that, that Jesus was indeed from heaven and, and a legitimate messenger from the father. Many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. In verse 45. I mean, clearly this is a prophet that's worthy of believing what he says. <laughs> clearly. I mean, here comes Lazarus. Goodness. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told the things which Jesus had done. Rather than believing in the messenger, they go and they report about the messenger to the messenger's adversaries. As if instead of being a token of his credential and a and a motivation for humbling ourselves, uh, it, instead it becomes a uh, a mark for fear and a mark for uh, an adversarial relationship. We've got to do something about this guy. So therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing? Now, that's a wonderful question. What are we doing? <laughs> but answer it in the right way. Don't answer it in the carnal way. For this man is performing many signs. Notice, they don't deny what he's doing. What they have a problem with is how do they respond? How do we stop him from doing those signs? Not that he's doing the signs. We have to humble ourselves and obey him. He's doing the signs. He is the Christ, son of the living God. He's more than any prophet that's ever walked this earth. You see, I mean, if you're, if you're legitimately looking at the testimony, the first thing you conclude is that he's a prophet. And then the second thing you come to realize is he is not just a prophet, he is the prophet. He is the one prophesied to come, that is, the anointed, the Christ, the, the deliverer of Israel, the redeemer of Israel. So they recognize that the signs are being done, and their response has to be to put an end to it. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Now you realize why they wanted it to stop. They realized that he was a threat. That people following him was bad news. You know, you and I, to, to us, this is, this is almost inconceivable. The idea of, of the coming kingdom being bad news? Isn't it a neat thing that, that the kingdom can be established, that righteousness will reign, and that the king of glory will, will rule over us? I, I don't have a problem with that. I'm looking forward to that. What a, what a treat. The only people that have a problem with that are those that have something to lose. Those that are currently in power that are going to lose that power. When, uh, you know, this world is passing, this cosmos is passing away and along with it, it's lusts. They're the ones that have a lot to lose. And, and the sad thing is, now, take it out of a kingdom context, put it into a rapture context. Believers are going to be in one of two camps when we hear that trumpet. Hopefully, um, we will be eagerly waiting for that trumpet, loving the Lord and his appearing when he comes. And there's a crown associated with that waiting for eagerly for the coming of the Lord in the heart attitude of Maranatha and rejoicing when we're caught up into glory. 
to all those who have loved his appearing. If that's your if that's your mental attitude focus on that imminent return of Christ, there is a crown awaiting you. But the second attitude towards the rapture of the church is one that's not too happy about it when it happens. It's the attitude of regret. It's the attitude of shame in First John chapter two and verse twenty eight. That they shrink away from him in shame at his parousia, at his coming. And that's the attitude of, oh no, not yet. Or, oh no, I'm not ready. Or, oh no, look what you caught me doing. Or, oh, I wanted to do more. I mean, it's the ultimate Homer Simpson moment. Which I don't know a thing about other than commercials. I've seen commercials. I've never watched the show. All right. But it's that moment of, anguish saying if you're not familiar with it put it on your refrigerator first john 2:28. little children abide in him so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming see the rapture of the church is uh, the snatching up of the bride and there's no one left behind there's no partial rapture it's the whole bride saying I've, I've never once in the history of the of marriage ever heard of a groom taking part of his bride away from the <laughs> away from the wedding service you know i've done a couple of weddings three weddings now over the last six months and every single time the the groom took his whole bride with him when they left every single time he didn't leave part of her behind all right the church it says thus we shall always be with the lord not some of us we us the church so, do we want to uh, rejoice at his coming? Are we going to shout? Are we going to give a shout when our feet leave the ground? And is that shout going to be the joyful shout or the shout of regret? That, oh no. Okay? Because if he catches you at a moment of carnality, there's not a lot of time to confess in the uh, twinkling of an eye. So, they don't deny the miracles, they acknowledge the miracles, they confess the miracles. But what they don't do is they don't respond by faith to the miracles. That's the difference. And you see, many were told in verse 45, many of the Jews, they, they apply faith. They exercise pistis for faith, uh, the verb pistuo. They believe in him. They have the faith response to what had been revealed. Faith is never blind faith. Faith is never just ooh, wishful thinking and hoping uh, about something that I can't prove. That's not faith. Faith is never a blind faith. Faith is always placed in an object according to the content of teaching that is revealed. And uh, here they are responding and they are applying faith. The Pharisees, though, they observe the same miracle. They observe the same testimony. They hear the same message, but they don't respond by an application of pistis, by faith. Instead, they convene a council and uh, pool their collective cosmos wisdom for trying to find a way to do away with the prophet. If you cannot refute the message, kill the messenger. Simple. <laughs> you know, we, can't, we can't debate him. We, uh, we certainly can't overcome those miracles he's doing. We can't refute his truth. We must do away with him. And, and notice how many times the father of lies is the father of murder. Why he was a murderer from the beginning. Why he was a liar from the beginning. Both titles go back to the beginning in the nature of our adversary. So despite, this is again main point A, despite the undeniable evidence, the religious leaders still resisted his message. Secondly, 
Signs in themselves are not the end all for prophetic ministry. The signs in themselves are not the end all for prophetic ministry. It has to coincide with the message. Is the message consistent? Because remember, there will be false signs as well. And the signs in themselves are not the end all for prophetic ministry. Unless, of course, they're a sign that the adversary has never been able to accomplish, like a resurrection. The devil has never been able to replicate a physical life resuscitation miracle. Never. He will do so once. He will be given permission in the tribulation to do so for the first time ever when he restores Antichrist to physical life. Uh, When Antichrist receives the fatal wound, the head wound, and yet is uh, visibly resuscitated in the eyes of the whole world. But up to this point, he's never been able to do that. And the coming forth of Lazarus was, uh, was undeniable. We see this in the end times, Matthew 24, 24. Also, the parallel, we don't have to read them both. We can just read one. Matthew 24, 24 and Mark 13, 22. If anyone uh, says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. That's the nature of the unrestrained deceit at work in the tribulational age. Behold, I have told you in advance. So this he's equipping believers, those with insight, to be able to see through the the false signs and wonders that will uh, be on the earth in the tribulational age. The real issue was not Jesus' failure to exhibit signs, but the Pharisees' failure to believe. That was the real issue. They kept repeating you know, again and again and again, show us signs, show us signs, show us signs. The problem wasn't that he, the lack of signs. He showed plenty of signs. The real issue was not Jesus' failure to exhibit signs, but the Pharisees' failure to believe. John 12:37. And see, this is what it comes down to today for you and I in our evangelism efforts. People that, uh, that I've spoken to, and they want to see a sign. John 12 and verse 37. Now in John 12, he is, uh, he's already entered Jerusalem. He's already had the uh, triumphant entry. And um, he's described for the uh, disciples what's going to happen. He's given the, uh, not my will but thine be done. And uh, he's prepared for the cross. Notice he's telling the, uh, the disciples this. I'm trying to avoid reading the whole chapter. <laughs> um, Verse 27, my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. See, the the different occasions where the the heavens were open and the Father's voice was audibly manifest on the earth, like at his baptism, where the Holy Spirit descended on him, like this incident here, like the uh, Mount of Transfiguration. Three times uh, the Father testified, of the Son. 
So um, the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying an angel had spoken to him. The unbelievers, without the capacity to hear the Father's voice, all they heard was sounded to them like thunder. And Jesus answered and said, This voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. See, that voice from the Father was the reassurance, the testimony to the Son that his prayer has been answered. Glorify your name. That the Son will have victory on the cross. That in his humanity, he will not be tempted beyond that which he will be able to bear. See, and the voice of the Father was his reassurance on that. And he knows that the cross, he hadn't gone to the cross yet, but he knows that he, the Father is going to have that provision for him in facing that test. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, it's a first class condition, it is a statement, he is going to the cross, will draw all men to myself. And by this he was saying to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. All right. So it's in that context where he's, uh, preparing for the cross, and he says, For a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of light. Now, that's the call. That's the imitation, as it were. Then uh, the statement, though, that John summarizes in verse 37, But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him that's the response that's the response so the uh, the invitation is given the command is given walk and yet it comes down to uh the uh response there in uh verse 37 all right point four back to matthew uh, 16 then the objective for the sign request was to tempt Jesus into disobeying the Father. Back to Matthew 16. And the key phrase there in verse 1. Matthew 16 and verse 1. And here's where I want to highlight something for you from the Greek. Let you look at it. In fact, it's too bad Cliff's not here, but B3 can look at this. This is part of what we're uh, looking at in terms of participles. It's like when you're trying to learn about the Great Commission and figure out what, it is, what is it that we are uh, commanded to do here. All right. You want English up there side by side? The real thing they were doing was testing him, tempting him, ensnaring him. Asking him was just simply the window dressing. Give us a sign was the vehicle they used, but their their ultimate activity was that they were ensnaring him, or trying to anyway. All right? So as you look at the verse and you see your subject here, you've got hoi pharasioi, kai sadukaioi, there's Pharisees and Sadducees. And what were they doing? Ultimately, what were they doing? I want you to see this. Let's dismiss the uh, other ones here. The first participle is an aorist participle. It just describes the conditions by which it happened. Coming up. The Pharisees and Sadducees came up. That's an aorist participle. It's, it's intended to communicate the uh, circumstances prior to the main, uh, the verb or the main verb. All right? The... the uh, 
the main verb is right here. Ep erotason auton. They were asking him, and what they were asking him for was a sign from heaven. Asameon ectu uranu. All right. That's what they were asking him. But the one item I've not yet highlighted or underlined is the key one. I'm going to put it also in red because it's not an aorist participle. It's a present participle, perazontus. And this participle describes the contemporaneous activity with the main verb. So as we outline the, the, the syntax of the passage itself, it's not the vocabulary that strikes us, it's the grammar. It's the syntax of this. The Pharisees and Sadducees, having come up, testing Jesus by asking him. We realize that what they're really doing is testing Jesus, putting him to the test. And uh, it doesn't always come across in English how, where the main verb is or what the circumstances are. For example, in the Great Commission, it's not as clear. Here, it's not as clear. The Pharisees and Sadducees came up and testing Jesus, they asked him to show them a sign. We look at verse 1 and it says, well, gee, we've got kind of three verbs there, don't we? We've got came up, we've got testing, and uh, we've got asking. It looks to us in English like we've got three main verbs, right? We don't. We have one verb. The one verb is the verb asking him, asking him to show a sign. But the participle that goes with that verb is perazo, is this participle right here. And what they were doing in asking the question. What they were doing in asking the question. Think about the nature of questions. You can do a lot of things in asking a question. If it's a simple question for information, uh, you, could, uh, you could simply be uh, requesting knowledge is all you're doing. Okay? If I, uh, if I uh, see... But just ask an inquisitive question. And I say, uh, because I don't know, let's see, middle names. I like, occasionally I like to know middle names. All right? I know Ethan's. I know Terry's. I, know, I don't know Linty's. And so I might just ask. I say, what's your middle name? And it's just an informational kind of question. And you answer it or you don't answer it. Tell me it's none of my business or slap me or whatever. Or you tell me. That's fine. Okay? And what have I done in asking that question? I've just acquired information. I can also flatter with asking a question or I can insult somebody by asking a question or I can entrap somebody by asking a question. See, a lot of these stings that law enforcement set up for drugs or prostitution, all these other stings that they set up in, uh, they can do so with asking questions. Hey, you want to buy some drugs or things like that. And you're asking a question, but what's your goal in asking that question? You're getting them to answer. You're getting them to respond. You're getting them to entrap themselves by the way that they respond. See? All right? If I ask you a question like, uh, <laughs> you could be very positive. Like, wow, where did you get that shirt? That's, that, I, that's, that's wonderful. I want, I want a shirt like that. See? That, that's an impressive, bright red Texas Tech shirt. Boy, I could... You could be seen for miles wearing that shirt. That's, that's neat. Where, can I get one of those? That's a question that's very positive. That's very, but you could phrase it a different way, couldn't you? Where in the world did you get that god-awful shirt? Right? <laughs> you know? Did you pay money for that shirt? Now, if you ask a question like that, what are you communicating? That's, that's rather insulting, isn't it? Right? 
you see some of these uh, you see some of these women and the husbands they married, and you ask, what did she see in him? And how's it? That question communicates what? Communicates, yeah, she's some kind of an attractive babe or something, and he's this ugly guy. Must have seen something in his personality, maybe, or maybe money or whatever she married him for. Okay? So you understand? We're having a little bit of fun this morning, but you could do a lot with questions. What were they doing with their question? We're told in the grammar. Undeniably, we're told by the virtue of this present participle linked to this, this main verb here, that in, in the asking of the question, they were entrapping him. They were snaring him. They were perazzo tempting him. They wanted him to sin. The request for a sign was a temptation to sin. Because if the father hasn't given him any signs... What business would he have doing a sign? Like when the tempter came and said, turn these stones to bread. If the father didn't assign him that work to do, then for Jesus to do it would be a sin. For Jesus to, uh, to, he he was uh, under instructions to not do anything other than that which was led by the father for him to do. He wasn't free to just do, exercise deity and do whatever powers he wanted to do. He had to obey the Father in every work assignment. All right. So the idea of just doing a miracle to show show off or do a miracle to convince me when the Father had not assigned a miracle to do, that's why he was reluctant to even speak to that Syrophoenician woman. He didn't know that there was any work assignment to be done on his vacation to to, uh, Lebanon, to to the territory there he had no speaking engagements scheduled he was there trying to stay undercover trying to stay anonymous no speaking engagements and without any teaching he wasn't anticipating any miracles to be done and the father had not had not uh, indicated that he was to do any miracles all right the verb is perazzo perazzo p-e-i-r-a-z-o perazzo number 3985 and this is to tempt or to snare into a downfall to tempt or to snare into a downfall. About 98% of every use of perazzo is always is, is used to try to ensnare somebody. Always, almost always, there's only one noteworthy exception I know of, uh, where the intent is to bring about somebody's fall. All right? What it really is intended to do is intended to, to determine of what sort of person uh, the, the people are. That's that's the idea of a snare, of a trap. Find out what their character is like. Find out what they're made of. You know, you you drop a wallet in a in a, in a on a sidewalk. It's got hundred dollar bills hanging out of it, and then you sit back with a hidden camera and you watch people walking by, right? And you find out that uh, you know ninety nine out of hundred people just take the money and disappear, right? One guy actually looks around, tries to figure out whose wallet it is, and returns it with uh, with the money intact. Well, perazzo, if you're, if you're snaring somebody by uh, tempting them to sin, to see what, what their character is like, well, you're going to get a pretty consistent answer because that's what human character is like. <laughs> if you're testing for, for human character and if you're testing for carnality, that's what you're going to get. Now, you contrast that with another verb, dokimazo, for entirely different results. In dokimazo, it is also used to test or to try or to examine 
But Dokimazo is always with the goal of approval. Dokimazo is always testing for approval. And so it's never, it's never an either-or kind of test. Is it, is it right or is it wrong? Dokimazo is always a test for approval, whereas Peirazzo is a test for either-or, but tending towards the disapproval, tempting for the downfall. And that's the big difference. God is our evaluator. He will dokimazo us. He will not tempt us. James chapter 1 and verse 13, that uh, let no one say when he is tempted, he's being tempted by God. For God himself cannot be tempted, nor does he tempt anyone. Now, he permits Satan to tempt us, but when he permits the tempting, he always uses it as a dokimazo evaluation. So that's your contrast. That's a very fruitful word study to go through and to contrast Peirazzo with Dokimazzo. In this activity, they demonstrate their, their parentage. This is subpoint B. In this activity, they demonstrate their parentage as Ha Peirazzo is the tempter. You put the in front of the verb to tempt, and you get the tempter, and that's a title for Satan. Satan is the tempter. You put the in front of your verb. Let me switch to yellow. And he is the tempter. The verb peirazzo. You see, we just added a new on the end of peirazzo. All we did was add a new on it and put a the in front of it, put ha in front of it. Ha peirazzo is the tempter. That's one of his titles. He's the adversary, he's the father of lies, he's the, uh, the devil, the serpent, the dragon. He's got all these titles, Leviathan, the twisted serpent. One of his titles is the tempter. Ha Perazon is the tempter. Matthew 4, 3, 1 Thessalonians 3, 5. Let's look at those, Matthew 4. The slanderer. That rears his ugly head in so many applications where his offspring, the brood of vipers, is involved in pursuing their father's good pleasure by slandering, by uh, tempting, by lying, by murdering. Matthew 4, 3. Even verse 1 Jesus was led up by the Spirit. This is what we were discussing last night in obedience to the Holy Spirit. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. To be peirazzo tempted. Now the Father didn't send the temptation, but he allowed the temptation. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter, ha peirazzon, came and tempted him, said to him, if you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. In other words, show us a sign. It's the same thing that these Pharisees are doing in chapter 16. The Pharisees and Sadducees came to him, tempting him, saying, asking for a sign. No different than right here. Turn these stones to bread. Asking that Jesus would depart from the will of the Father and do a miracle that the Father had not assigned. Stepping out of the Father's will. It's not only in the Gospels where he's called Ha Perazon, but in the Epistles as well. First Thessalonians chapter three and verse five. 
part of the encouragement for a training ministry is the recognition that young men in training can be used for these kind of work assignments. Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind in Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker, probably 12 years old. Our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. This is a local church that actually had the humility when a 12-year-old Timothy arrived in town that he was trained by Paul and he was a Bible teacher. See? At what point, at what age? I mean, we have a, a rotation of men that, that, uh, that teach here on Sunday nights. We have younger men that we're training in terms of the pastor-teacher gift. At what, at what point of time do we get uh, do we get Skylar up here? Do we get Radley up here? Do we get B3 up here? Do we get Ethan up here? If they're being trained and if they have a message, if they've studied, if their notes are together and they've got a content to teach, does the flock have humility to learn the Word of God or not? Are we too sidetracked by the person and say, oh, he's too young? In any event, the Thessalonian church had a lot of humility, and uh, they received Timothy, and he was able to strengthen and encourage them as to their faith, so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction, and so it came to pass, as you know. For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith, for fear that ha peradzon, that the tempter might have Perazzo tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you, and has brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us, just as we also long to see you. For this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted. So Timothy had a very successful training minister there, and a very successful opportunity to teach the word, and to encourage them, and to report back and to uh, encourage Paul based on his report. So the devil, one of his titles is the tempter, and a tool that he uses. Remember, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. So if it's a person involved, realize they're just the tool. They're the tool in the hands of their father, doing their father's business, seeking to be pleasing to their father, just like it's not us either. We're the tool in our Father's hand. Any fruit that He bears through us, we're not the ones doing the work. We're the tool. And so in our conflict, in the angelic conflict, identify the snares, identify the tools, pray for those tools. Don't hate the tools. They're just the tools. But pray for them. Remember, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers. Remember who, uh, who's motivating them. What are they driven by? What are they oriented by? Don't be surprised if uh, they're motivated by the slanderer, the tempter, the adversary, the murderer, the liar. What do you expect? They're serving their father. That's their nature. They are by nature children of wrath. And uh, it gets really sad when they're believers that are held captive by Satan to do his will. That's even worse. First Timothy chapter 2. All right. We will come back to this. There's two more issues we have to deal with. We have to deal with the human wisdom. We'll talk about the weather forecasting of uh, red sky at night. And uh, we'll talk about the human wisdom that is very quick to embrace um, different things, and yet they're very slow 
to embrace God's word when that's been revealed. They, they put all their stock in human wisdom and they'll bank on that. But when it comes to what God revealed, they're like, well, show me some proof. And it's amazing how uh, the human carnal mind will, uh, will do that. So we'll have some fun with that next week. Uh, go ahead and put a list together, if you would, of uh, just your own idioms, your own expressions, your own axioms or maxims or uh, the, the folklore your family has uh, latched onto for all these years. You'd be surprised how many there are, and we'll, uh, we'll bring quite a few of them up next week. We'll have some fun with that. All right. Thank you, Father, for the truth of your word. Thank you for this class and the opportunity we have. And thank you for the training ministry, for the young men you've sent to us and their training. Thank you for the new employment that uh, has now begun. And, Father, it is a delight to see these things coming together. We rejoice and praise your name in Christ's name. Amen.